turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at that whole chapter today. It's on page 1775 of the Blue Pew Bible. There's a story once told of a train that was about to leave a railroad station. And the conductor began to take the tickets from the people who were sitting there. And looking at the tickets, the first passenger, he looked at the first passenger that he took the ticket from and he told him, sir, I think you're on the wrong train. The man replied that the ticket agent had actually sent him to this track in this train and that he thought that he was on the right track, to which the conductor got off and went to the ticket salesperson. And lo and behold, he had been on the wrong train taking the tickets. (laughs) When the leader is lost, how in the world can he lead people on the right track? That's actually the theme of what Paul is putting his finger on in chapter 4 here. Leaders that are not lined up with the gospel leading, teaching in the Corinthian church. Thus the Corinthians are being discipled in a wrong direction. So he takes this portion of his letter that we call chapter 4 and he describes through using himself as an Apollos as an example, he describes what a leader in God's church should look like. Look with me at verse 1. God's word says, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us. Oh, how I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. 
We are fools for Christ, Uh but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I'm writing this to shame you. Not, not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son whom I love who is faithful in the Lord, he will remind you of the way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And when then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and a gentle spirit? You know, the most important decision you will make as a body is not what missionaries to support, not whether to build an addition to this building, not what to do with the excess money from 2016. Not whether to add more staff members. Not even to vote on the annual budget. The most important decision that you as a body will ever make is what elders you have over you. And by elders, that includes pastors, because they're an elder too. Because as the leader goes, most likely, so goes the congregation. Among the Corinthian myriad of problems, and they do have a lot of problems, they apparently had false teachers as well in their midst. You see that in verse 19 when he's talking about those arrogant people that he wants to find out about. In 2 Corinthians, his second letter to them in in chapter 11, he spends practically the whole chapter talking about these false teachers how they have undermined his ministry, how they've questioned his authority, and how they are actually preaching a different gospel. Each of these, Paul confronts right here in our text through the use of three metaphors that I hope you caught as we read. The metaphors of steward, a prisoner, and a father. And that's our outline. A steward prisoner, and a father. And through those metaphors, God is going to show us what a leader looks like. First, a steward. Look at verse 1 with me. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. NIV 
translates the Greek there, entrusted with the secret things of God. The, the English Standard Version, the ESV, translates it, I think, a little better, a little clearer, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Here Paul uses the metaphor of steward, of a steward of a household to describe himself and the other apostles, and Apollos as well. A steward is one who's left in charge of the household in those days. It was a servant that was given the keys to the household when the master was going on an extended journey. Very interesting if you read maybe in your devotions this week, Matthew 16, about the authority and keys of the kingdom that he gives. It kind of extends this metaphor. A steward, a master would give the steward of the household the keys, and he would be in charge of the household not just the physical household, but also the servants that were there, the people that lived there as well. He was entrusted to take care of them until he returned. And here Paul says that he was entrusted with a steward of the gospel. Now, that can be a little confusing when you read this. It says entrusted with the secret things of God. I mean, that's so tempting to think, what are the secret things of God? I guess there's some knowledge I don't know. No. The secret things of God, the mystery that we read in first in Colossians as our public reading, that's another way that, that the scripture talks about the gospel. That was once hidden, but now revealed, as Colossians 1 says. So Paul is saying that he was entrusted with the gospel, a steward of the gospel, to care for the gospel, to protect the gospel, to love the gospel. I don't know if any of you watched Downton Abbey. Carrie and I did a, a year or two ago, and, and this week we just kind of watched the, the manners of Downton Abbey. Have you ever seen that, where they describe the manners of the Edwardian culture? It's fascinating. And it just reminded me of that whole series and, and how perfect Lord Grantham illustrates a steward. At one point, early on, you remember Matthew Crawley is, is marrying into the family, and he's going to be the next lord. And Lord Grantham is, is kind of training him how to care for Downton Abbey. And at one point, he says this. He tells Matthew, this, and he points to Downton Abbey, this is not ours. I don't own Downton Abbey. I'm just a caretaker. You don't love this place yet, Matthew, but you will. You see a million bricks that may crumble, a thousand gutters and pipes that may block and leak, and stones that will crack in the frost. But I see my life's work. Lord Grantham understood stewardship. He understood that that wasn't his, that he was just caring for it and protecting it and loving it until he could pass it on to the next person in the same shape that he received it. Paul is saying the same thing about the gospel. He's entrusted, he's a steward of the gospel to protect it, to love it, and to pass it on. And that is the quality that you want to look for in an elder of this church. Someone who loves the gospel. 
someone who will care for the gospel, someone who will protect the gospel. Someone who talks about it. Someone who gets excited when they talk about the gospel. Someone who sees the gospel truly as the pearl of great price. He finds it and he sells everything because he knows how valuable it is. I think that's what Paul is getting at in uh, um, verse 3 when he tells the Corinthians, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. He's saying, listen, I found the pearl of great price. I don't care what you think of me. I have the gospel. He loves the gospel so much that he's willing to put his reputation out there. It's like when you see two people that are truly in love and they're kind of oblivious to the rest of whoever is there. That's how you want, that's the quality you want in an elder of God's church. Another aspect of stewardship is protecting the gospel, loving the gospel and protecting the gospel. And an elder should be one who protects the gospel. Paul, writing to Titus, describes an elder as someone who must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder should get his cackles up when he hears the gospel being distorted. When he hears anything other than Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, for God's glory alone. If anything else he hears creeping in there, he should feel protective. Any gospel and talk, anything that takes away from the centrality of Christ, we get glimpses of this, this uh, kind of gospel outrage, if you will, throughout First and Second Corinthians. If you read those together, I think mo- the most clear, the clearest example of this is when Paul is writing to the Galatian church. You know it, and I know it. In, in, in Galatians one, he hears that his dear, dear children are being led astray, and he says this. Listen to these words. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and says this, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, and I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed or damned. Paul's gotten his cockles up. He's heard about the distortion of the gospel in Galatia. And people, you want men who get their cackles up when they hear the gospel being distorted. 
That's who you want. You want elders here at Southwest Harbor Congregational Church who will be faithful stewards of the gospel. The second metaphor Paul uses is that of prisoner. Is that of prisoner. This is what we see in verses 6 through 13 predominantly, but look at verse 9 with me, if you will. In verse 9, Paul writes, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of a procession like men condemned to die in the arena. Here Paul is using the metaphor of a prisoner. And he's using a very specific metaphor here that people of that age would, would get instantly by, that, by him writing that verse. You see, when, when the Romans would come back from a victory to Rome, and, and maybe those of you who have seen Ben-Hur, this is the picture of, of Ben-Hur, him coming back into Rome. And they would march their armies in front of the cheering crowds, right? Showing the might of, of, uh, of Rome. If you are old enough, you remember seeing uh, uh, the Russian military marches on TV in the 70s and 80s with the missiles, you know, showing their power. And then they would, after that, they would have a procession of all the spoils of war. They would, they would put on display the gold and the silver and the artwork that, that they had, had conquered and brought back to Rome. And at the very end of the procession, they would, have, they would bring some POWs, pulling them along in chains. And the, actually, the, the processions would go right past the Colosseum, and those prisoners were marched into the Colosseum, and they were either killed by wild beasts or killed by gladiators. And Paul is saying, that's the position that I'm in. I'm not at the head of the procession. I'm at the end. This is what life in Christ kind of looks like, people, he's saying. He's highlighting the life that a leader in Christ's church, what it should look like. The shape of the life needed to be a leader in Christ's church is not one that outwardly looks victorious but that actually outwardly looks pretty weak. Look again at verses 11 through 13. He describes what his life looks like, which is totally counter to what the Corinthians wanted Paul to look like, by the way. Totally counter to what culture was informing what a leader of of a new sect should look like. And this is how he describes himself. Starting in verse 11. To this very hour, and he's talking about himself, we go, we are dishonored. Uh, To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Commenting on this passage, N.T. Wright says this, what sort of person behaves like this? What, what sort of person in a leadership role looks like this, he's saying? 
And he answers his own question. He says, only a person who believes that God's wisdom is revealed in the tortured and broken body of his beloved son. When Paul declares that he and his fellow apostles are like the prisoners set to die after being put on parade, or the rubbish left over on a plate at the end of a meal only fit to be scraped off and thrown out, we might be right to hear the echoes of the events a few years earlier when his master was scraped off the floor of Pilate's torture room and dragged out of the city to die. And then he right ends it by saying, and if Paul needed to make that point to the Christians in Corinth, what would he say to comfortable Western society? That's an application for you and me, guys. What is scripture what scripture is describing is what life looks like lived out fully in Christ. Your life, in other words, should be cross-shaped. Your life should look cross-shaped. What this means is that your life should progressively look like Christ's. What Paul is describing here is his life. And and let me tell you again, it sounded so strange to the Corinthian ears to hear this. It took him two more letters that he wrote to them. We have to keep that mind that nobody in Corinth or anywhere in the world at that point had ever seen anybody living out life like this as a leader. It was strange. Now we have plenty of examples. You look back over the last 2,000 years. Now we have people that are not Christians living this type of ascetic life. At that point, nobody understood how a leader could be homeless and in rags, giving himself totally generously to another people, living a life of total self-sacrifice, refusing to play the power and prestige game, Okay, Paul never played that. He was different from culture because he was modeling Christ. He was willing to take that that prisoner POW position, which is the exact position of his master, isn't it? And living life like that will look as strange today as it did 2,000 years ago. Let me give you a couple examples, just, just within the church. Let's say you're a trustee here at the church. And you serve the church faithfully, giving your time, giving your talent. You come up with an idea to do something nice for the church. You get excited about it, you get passionate about it, and you complete it. And someone who doesn't know it's your idea comes up to you and says, who did that? Why did we spend money on that? Honestly, what's your reaction? How do you act? You could return the favor, couldn't you? And many times we do. And you poke them right back. Because you're hurt. 
Or you could say, no, on the outside I'm going to look good. But boy, your mind is going, isn't it? That's the last time I'm doing anything for the church. Or you could allow yourself to be led like a prisoner into the Colosseum. You could live a cross-shaped life and continue to serve with the same passion, with the same love, with the same desire. Willing to be hurt again. That's cross-shaped living. Let me give you another example. You're a leader here in the church, leading one of the ministries, and you feel very passionately about a direction in your ministry. Others don't agree, and we like to think unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally say something to hurt you. And out of your mouth comes the words, well then, you can find somebody else to lead this ministry. Is that the picture Christ is presenting here? When slandered, when oppressed, now listen, listen really carefully. I'm not, and scripture is not, advocating that we're simple doormats for everybody. I mean, if, if that's what you hear me saying, if that's what you hear Paul writing here, you have to reread the Gospels. Because Paul exemplified, I mean, uh, Jesus exemplified this perfectly, this cross-shaped living. But the fact that many of us are saying in our minds right now, hey, wait a minute, Blake, that's not fair. That's not right to be treated like that. I have my dignity. What I do needs to be appreciated and congratulated. I can't and shouldn't be treated like this. I gave my best. And what did I get in return? I gave my best and I was stepped on. Anybody else hear the gospel there? That's cross-shaped living. Cruciform living. It's living the shape of the cross. Living the cross-shaped life is not about being hurt. We're all going to get hurt. It's about how you react and act after you're hurt. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't it? And that's what we should be looking for in leaders and elders of God's church. Men who display the cross-shaped life, who are willing to live the cross-shaped life. Thomas Akempis wrote, Look, it all consists in the cross. It all lies in dying. And there's no other way of life. And that is true. That's where it all consists, people. An elder should be humble enough to be treated poorly and continue serving diligently. 
An elder should be willing to absorb slander and gossip and cursing and yet still love and wear his heart on his sleeve. You want to know what an elder looks like? An elder should be willing to be rejected again and again and again and yet stay open. An elder should resemble the cross-shaped life of our, of our Savior, shouldn't he? Who came into the world, yet the world didn't know him, John says, serving in anonymity. Who was tempted in every way, yet was sinless. Now, have you ever stopped to think about how hard it was for Jesus And if you've never thought about this, let me inform you how hard it was for Jesus to live a sinless life. We tend to kind of lean on his divinity when we think of this. Oh, he's God. He can do this. He was fully human, people. It was hard for him. And he did it for you. And he did it for me so that we don't have to live the perfect life. Who came to his own and his people, received him not, the King James says. Life lived out of active rejection, yet persevered through the cross. Who, when mocked on the cross, didn't give it back to them plus, said, forgive them. Forgive them. Remember in Sunday school, Forgiving even when you don't get an apology. Who came and died in the place of sinners like you and me, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin and taking on the pain and separation from God so that we don't have to. If you accept Jesus and what he did, his completed work, You never suffer separation from God in this life or the next. How beautiful is that? That's the shape of Paul's life that he's describing. And that's the example that we are to follow. And that's the cruciform shape of a life of an elder, serving anonymously, wearing your heart out on your sleeve, forgiving when no apology is coming, and absorbing negativity. Those are men, Paul is saying, Corinth, that you need to follow. And those are men, people of Southwest Harbor, that you need to put over you, always. The last metaphor Paul uses is that of a father. That's what we see in verses 14 through 21. Look at 15, verse 15 says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Here Paul uses a metaphor of father to communicate the loving authority that he has. Your loving language in verse 14, he calls them dear children. He loved this church like a father. In his second letter in Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I wrote out of the depth of my love for you. See, what a father should do is not only 
say he loves you, but display his love for you. Paul's love for the Corinthian church was so great that he wrote them four letters and he visited them twice. And they weren't very receptive. He loved them. Always keeping the relationship. Even though they sinned intentionally, rejected Paul's authority and wandered from the gospel. Gosh, as I was writing that this week, that describes God's love for us, doesn't it? I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'm always coming towards you in relationship. I don't leave you. Even though we disobey intentionally and we reject his authority again and again in our life. We wander from the gospel over and over. Our Heavenly Father loves us so much, he always keeps the relationship open, always pursuing the relationship. Yet, like a father, like a perfect father, there is discipline and authority. And that's what he exhibits in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I'm sorry, 18. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon. Anybody here grow up in a household where their mother told the children when they disobeyed, wait till your father gets home. (laughs) That's what's going on here. He's saying, I love you dearly. I will will pursue you to the ends of the earth, but listen, listen. Wait till I get there. Verse 21, we see his authority even more clearly, where he ends it with, what, do you, what shall you prefer? What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and a gentle heart? Paul is like a father that has authority to exercise firm but loving discipline. And here's the tough one. That's what you want in an elder. Ah, I don't like that. No, no, that's what you want in an elder. Someone who loves you like a father. Someone who loves you so much that he will say hard things to you, things you don't like about how you're living. Because that's the essence of a father, is loving authority how he reacts and acts towards you. I simply do not have time today to go into the nuances of this. And I know you're all sitting on the edge of your pew wanting me to unpack this and tell you exactly how this is going to work. I just don't have time, but I do have time to read you one verse and unpack that. That is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will someday give an account. Part of the elders' authority is implied. They have authority to manage, to lead, to admonish, to keep watch over the flock like a shepherd. But part of their authority is also given. Did you see that? The writer of the Hebrews says, obey them. In other words, give them the authority in your life. It's good. We push back on authority so much, but the irony is is that although we hate authority, we actually love authority. 
Stephen Um in his commentary says, we love authority and it's fine when we exercise it, but not when it's exercised over us. We're fine with authority when we possess it, but not when others do. We're fine with authority when we're in control, but not when others are in control. That's the origin of sin in our heart. I mean, can't can't you just hear the echoes of Genesis 3 there? Rejecting God's authority, yet life is full of it, isn't it? Children, you have parents. That's authority. Workers, you have a boss. That's authority. Citizens of America, you have a government. And that's authority. Husband, wife, Christian Jesus, church and member. Life, if you struggle with authority, you're going to struggle with the Christian life. And I encourage you, I don't have time now, I encourage you to study it in Scripture because authority is good, it's created by God, and you flourish when you're interacting with it healthily. And we want to be looking for elders who do not display authority in an authoritarian manner for their own ends. But as we see here with Paul, loving the people of God so much that he's willing to discipline them. Loving them so much that he's willing to speak into their lives. Loving them so much that he's willing to lead in unpopular directions. Loving them so much that he's willing to call out sin where it exists. And that's chapter 5. People of God, you want elders over you who will love you like a father. Remember that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful text that you've given us that displays you so, so precisely and so perfectly. Love you so much. Again, we, we just bow to your authority in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.